Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward will you eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. My name is Albert. If you're new to this church, what we do here is we just study through the Bible. And right now we're in the Gospel of Luke. And here we are in chapter 17. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Cherish it so much and we love it so much, God. And Holy Spirit, please speak to our minds, our souls, our spirits, our hearts as we open of what you have to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we dive into Luke chapter 17, let's take a quick look at what came before Luke 17 and what comes after Luke 17. Let's start by looking back to Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now keep a tab on that and then move forward. Let's shoot forward to Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now just keep those as two bookends as we get into the meat of our passage this morning in 17, just what we're covering this morning. So before and after Luke 17, Jesus warned his disciples of the Pharisees and the scribes. And before we get too critical of the scribes and the Pharisees, we need to remember to take a really good look at ourselves because as we look into chapter 17, we find that Jesus is again addressing his disciples, but it's not a warning against the Pharisees and the scribes. He's warning his disciples against themselves. So in our text this morning, we're going to find four different things for us to to check ourselves with, to ask ourselves. And, and, And I'm not saying that checking others is not for us to do as well as we will see in the Bible. That is something for us to do. But it's to be done in light of paying attention to ourselves so that we can indeed be helpful to others and not just self righteous idiots right so verse one and he said to his disciples temptations to sin are sure to come but woe to the one through whom they come so check number one to ask yourself is am i influencing others to sin 
Am I influencing others to sin? Jesus told us temptations to sin are sure to come. He didn't say temptations to sin may come. They are sure to come. We are faced with temptations. And Jesus is well aware that temptations are before us. But woe to the one through whom they come. So in other words, woe to the one whom their life brings forth those temptations and creates an environment where the temptations are encouraged to manifest. Now Jesus is really serious about this, dead serious about this. You read on in verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. I was going to show you a picture of a millstone that I had in my uh, computer, but my computer died this week. So I had to actually just type everything directly in my iPad. And it was so frustrating because the iPad only has one screen at a time. Now that I've vented, I'm done. Now the millstone... The millstone is not a small stone. This is a huge stone. This is to grind grains and things like that. This is a humongous stone. So tied around your neck and cast into the sea. He's not saying like carry those things and remain alive. This is die an excruciating death by drowning. That is better for you to do that than to to cause a little one to sin. Now, some may think that since Jesus said little ones, that he's only meaning children, but I don't think so. I think it's pertaining to his children, his little ones, right? So, which of course includes children. But his little ones are, 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 are those such as the sinners and the tax collectors who were new to the faith and they were following Jesus. And so, you know, the, these people that were brand new to the faith and following him, those are his children. Don't you dare, Pharisees and scribes and even you disciples and apostles that have been following me, cause those kids to stumble. Now, are we leading those new believers down the road of temptation? Those of us who have been Christians for a while, and maybe those of us who take more liberty at uh, interpreting what the Scripture should mean, and, and we were just really loose about our interpretations, and, and we're leading new believers to stumble. Better if a millstone was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, than that would happen. Now back to Luke chapter 12 again, when Jesus said in verses 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who will kill the body, and after that nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Hell is real. There's a lot of debate, and there are some other writings out there by other people who are saying that hell is not. It is. If it is not, why do you think Jesus is so serious about leading people into temptation if that was not a real place? Why do you think Jesus warned his friends in Luke chapter 12 about whom to fear if that is not a real place? Hell is a reality, and and the way you end up there is making light of sin to the extent that it doesn't affect your life. It's a serious issue to lead people down the path of temptation. And if you don't realize that, are you really a follower of Jesus? Because he tells us that it's better to suffocate To have waters fill your lungs, to sink to the bottom of the sea and rot there, than to influence someone into sin. He's deadly serious about this. So are we influencing others to sin? 
our spouse, our kids, our, our friends, our boyfriends, girlfriends, our co-workers, our fellow believers in Jesus? Are we influencing them to sin? Does the way that we live have an effect in, in making sin acceptable? How are we using our money? How are we using our time? What, what are we doing that may be influencing people into temptation? What is happening in your mind? Are you plotting how to influence someone into temptation? Are you not being wise in how you live your life and being above reproach? It's better for us to die a painful, suffering death than it is for us to influence someone into temptation. Lord, have mercy on us. Now, is Jesus being literal about tying a millstone around someone's neck and throwing them into the San Francisco Bay? Is that literal? And I would say no, in that it's similar to what Matthew wrote in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Anyone have one hand because you cut it off because you sinned? Or one foot. I don't see any patches here. Arr, you know, I don't see that. It's a metaphor. This is a metaphor. The aim of following Jesus isn't for us to uh, roll into heaven like pirates, right? Like a hook in one hand, a peg leg, and an eye patch. You know, that's not, that's not the goal. The metaphor is really clear. Don't go there. Don't go there. There are really serious implications to sin. So don't go there with your hands. Don't go there with your feet. Don't go there with your eyes. Don't go there. And in our text this morning, don't go there in influencing people into sin. Don't do that. It is serious. There are serious implications to doing that. And there are many ways we can influence people into temptation. I mean, you look at idolatry putting things before God. And perhaps you've put your job before God and your family has witnessed this. Or you've put your business or, or your money or, or maybe some other relationships before other ones. Maybe it's an addiction that you've placed before anything else. And you're influencing those around you into the temptation as you place those things before God, prioritizing those things to be in front of God. And so you influence people. How about the lack of ethics or morals or, you know, c conducting illegal activities? Because none of us lives a solitary life, right? No, none, of us, none of us lives that way. We, we live in solitary moments, but we don't live a solitary life. So, so the way we conduct ourselves, whether it's unethical, immoral, or illegal, influences those around us. We don't live alone. We're, we were created to live in community and we influence others. It, it just happens. Are we influencing others to temptations or are we influencing others to righteousness? And you never know who's watching or listening to you. You never know. You, you may think you're in a place where, where no one knows where you are, but you would be surprised that people know you. Just this last Thursday, I went out to dinner with a friend and so there was a table of women who, who were there. Most, if not all of them, were moms uh, to my daughter's school. They were, they were her classmates' mothers. 
And so they're behind me. And the reason I don't know that all of them were there is because I didn't recognize all of them. And so half of them I recognize and the other half I didn't. But they all know that I'm a pastor. Every single person in her school knows that I'm a pastor. And the reason is, isn't because I... I'm, by the way, everyone here, I'm a pastor. It's not that. It's because, you know, our church has been really generous with them. They were starting brand new. They didn't have any facility yet when they first started. And so they were looking for meeting spaces. And so we offered them meeting spaces here at the church. And this sanctuary was where they held their school lottery. And so all of the people that are in that school had to be here to be part of that lottery. And then they had this big get-together planned, and it got rained out. So they called and they said, hey, can we use your gym? And so we had an indoor party for them in our gym. And so everyone knows that I'm a pastor. I also taught them Kung Fu for one semester. And so even now, it's a semester later, and I'm not teaching Kung Fu there anymore, but a lot of kids still come by and they're like, Sifu, 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 Sifu. And all this, Sifu, by the way, is master in Cantonese. I don't know why they're saying in Cantonese it's a Mandarin school that's silly children. Anyway, um, so we're, we're going around, Sifu, Sifu, and they're high fives and smiles and all this and hugs. and all, we, we have a great relationship. I don't get it with kids. Even if you yell at them, they are okay with it. But a lot of them do this and... I say all this because let's say that I didn't recognize that group of women that was sitting behind me. And I'm I'm there and I'm sitting and, and I did something unethical, immoral, or illegal. They all know I'm a Christian. I did not know all of them, but they all knew me. My testimony is out the door, isn't it? So I know that at least one in that group that was behind me, she was a Christian, but I didn't know about the rest. But I know that at least one of them is. And how would my actions influence them in light of knowing that I'm a Christian? And a few in that group have become friends of mine, so I've been praying for them, and I've been praying for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But what would happen if I influence them into temptation? Because, you know, we've been building a pretty good rapport. We've been building a good relationship. They have a really positive outlook on who Christians are, and it doesn't freak them out. And some of them have even visited our church. What if I did something that showed that sin was not that big of a deal to me? If I just had a, a lot of sake and got totally plastered and drunk, then, ah, drunkenness is not a big deal. It's not. I didn't have any, by the way. We don't always know who's around us. We don't, do we? We don't always know who we influence, do we? You just don't know. Now, how about indifference? You don't care enough about your own spiritual development, and it influences those in your family or your spouse or your kids. What you're modeling for them is indifference in how you view and value God. And that influences them into temptation. See, our our lifestyles, our actions, our words, our thoughts, they influence people. And if they influence people to temptation, it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and cast into the sea, metaphorically. There, There are some serious implications to your sinful influences. Verse 3, this is key. Pay attention to yourselves. 
Pay attention to yourselves. This is so important for us to understand. We are so good at getting involved with what's wrong with other people before looking at what's wrong with ourselves, aren't we? How many times do we find ourselves worrying about other people and what they do when there is plenty wrong with what we do? How many of us involve ourselves in other people's business when we have plenty of business of our own to worry about? Now, you may or you may not be responsible for others, but you are always responsible for yourself. Always. Which also includes matters of a spiritual nature. You are responsible for yourself. Before we go out there pointing out everything wrong with everyone else, let's be sure that we pay attention to ourselves. When you and I stand before God... We'll stand before Him either with or without Jesus, but no one else. You are there by yourself. Your spouse, your parents, your children, your friends, they are not there with you. You are responsible for you. That guy's a terrible driver. I can't believe he drives like that. I don't know how many times I've said that. And that's probably true. But what does that have to do with me? What does that guy have to do with me? That is their problem. I need to just watch myself and how I drive. Right? I need to just check myself. Check yourself. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 41-42, through 42, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Pay attention to yourselves. And then, Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. So first, check to ask yourself, am I influencing others to sin? The second one to ask yourself is, am I forgiving? Am I forgiving? So let's be sure to pay attention to ourselves. And if our brother sins, rebuke him. But first, pay attention to yourself before you do that. But if he sins, rebuke him. See, you notice that order, right? First Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. And then he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. See, we're not to be indifferent to sin. We are called to call our brother out. When they sin. But we need to identify our own first. To pay attention to ourselves first. We don't have any business calling out a brother's sins if we are blind to our own. Right. So how we handle a brother sinning against you. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So first, go to him and deal with the issue one-on-one. And I think some of the problems we have with conflict resolution can be resolved if we would just heed Jesus' instructions in verse 15. That we would just go to the person one-on-one that we've, we have an, an issue with. 
And how issues get complicated because people don't deal with issues one-on-one. They, they, they start creating parties to, to join them before, and then this group over here uh, creates their own kind of defense party, and then they all kind of clash. We are to go and tell him his fault, but often we don't do anything. So either we start kind of gathering groups to come against someone, or we just don't do anything. Like, oh, it's no big deal. So what if he did that? And and we're, we're treating the sin as it's not a big deal. And so we often have these two extremes where we have a lot of people going after somebody or no one doing anything. But Jesus is just saying, you go to him and deal with it one on one. Because how often do we make problems larger by not doing that? We, we gathering people and making things bigger. And, it, and he says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If it doesn't get resolved, then you take one or two other people along with you. Now, this isn't some bullying tactic that Jesus is telling you to take. This step is taken because the issue isn't resolved one-on-one. You've tried to resolve it one-on-one. It's not working, so you're bringing along another witness or two to go with you to, to point out that that is indeed sin. And it's an opportunity for the one who's been supposedly sinned against to find out if they're wrong because they're going to share the story with that one or two witnesses and say, hey, blah, 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 blah. And those people can say, like, I think you're overreacting. I think you're out of, out of place here. And they can call you on it too. But if they say, like, yeah, you're right. Let's go talk to that person. Let's go hear that side of the story. And so they'll get together and they'll point that out. So if the one or two witnesses feels the same, you go as this small group of people to tell the offender his fault. Now if the two or three of you win your brother, great. If not, you tell it to the church. Now again, this isn't some bully tactic or this is not like a tattletaling session to the church. It's not like that. This is a process. This is a process to purify those who call themselves followers of Jesus. So if the church isn't able to step in or can't step in after approaching someone one-on-one and then approaching them as a small group without resolution, if the church is not approachable, who can be? Who can be? So you go one-on-one, you go to a group, and then you turn to the church. And as a person who engages in intimate things with the church, such as fellowship and worship and prayer and the breaking of bread and Bible study... Doesn't it make sense to continue on that stream of intimacy to resolve issues dealing with sin, which can also be an intimate thing? So you bring it back into the community, especially when that sin is what separates you from God. Sin separates us from God, so that's an intimate thing, that relationship with God. So you're involving the church in that intimate place and involving them in their involvement. And the church needs to care about those who are separated from God. We need to come around those who are in need of prayer and support and and resources so that we may restore them. And oftentimes it starts with the rebuke of sin. Rebuke is meant to lead to repentance. It's not made to put someone down and and make them feel small. It's, it's, It's so that we're leading them to repentance so that the sinner's relationship with God is restored. And that relationship between those affected and, and the parties affected, those relationships may be restored. It's not to say, like, you bad person. Rebuke is for restoration. And if the church is refused, 
Let him be as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, how do some of us interpret this? The way I think it should be interpreted is thinking about how Gentiles and tax collectors were treated by those who loved Jesus. How would you treat someone who does not know Jesus? You would treat them as people who needed the gospel. You would love them. You would treat them as people who were lost and needed light, and you would love them into the kingdom. You would treat them as people who have never heard of the gospel, have never experienced the love and forgiveness of Jesus, and share that love and forgiveness with them. And so many times, Christians treat this as, you're excommunicated. You're done. Jesus said, treat them as Gentiles and tax collectors, and that's not how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors. Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors as, I'm going to eat at your house. I'm going to get together with you. God loves you. Right? So when, when people sin in the church and you're saying like, well, I went to them one-on-one and they didn't do anything. I brought someone with them and they do anything. I brought the church and they do anything. I'll get them out of here. No. Yeah, maybe they break fellowship with us, but we are to love them like Gentiles and tax collectors as lost people, as people that don't know Jesus. So we're still to continue to love them. We're still continue to serve them. So rebuke the sinner. Not because you want to be right, not because you want to belittle them, but because you love them. You love them. You love them enough to bring a witness. They refuse. You love them to involve the church. They refuse. You love them enough to treat them as someone who's never heard the gospel before. Just like anybody else out there. Not that you shun them. So you deal with it with the offender. And there's no reason to gossip about it or slander someone. And and if he repents, forgive him. Don't hold any grudges. Forgive. And this is where I preach to myself. Because I am really good at holding grudges. You can ask my wife. She's back there. When I am wronged, forgiveness is so challenging for me. It is so challenging for me. I'm not good at letting things go at all. If you wrong me, it will take time. I seriously will work on it. I will pray. I will try to let it go. I will try to forgive you. I'm telling you now, though, it will take time. And the more serious it is, the longer it will take. So if I glare at you, you know what's going on in my heart. So if someone wrongs me multiple times, oh man, man, it's really difficult for me. I hold grudges. I do not forgive easily. And then Jesus says this. He has the audacity to say this to me in verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Are you kidding me? If he does it seven times in a day, I'm supposed to forgive him seven times? You're kidding. And here's where I pray that this is literal. This is where I pray, Lord, okay, eighth sin in a day? Forget it. Right? Eighth sin. So if you sin against me once, I'm praying for the eighth time because I don't want to forgive you. I want to hold that grudge against you. I, I, want, to, I want to throw down with you. I'm so mad, right? But this isn't about quantity. This isn't literal, unfortunately, for people like me. 
This is about taking a posture of forgiveness. This is not about quantity. Right? This is about having a heart of forgiveness. It's not even about the feeling of forgiveness. Because I don't feel like forgiving a lot of times. Forgiveness is a promise. It's a promise that is to be extended by us because it was extended to us from God. And so we, like God, we extend that. We practice that in in like manner. So the issue isn't that we can't forgive. The issue is that we won't forgive. It's not that I can't. It's that I won't. I choose not to sometimes. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget. Because people like to link those two things together. And don't you hate that? Forgiveness means that you've forgotten. What are you talking about? I can't forget that. It's in here. It's in here. There's no way I can forget that. If someone murdered your child, you think you can forget it? You can't forget it. Forgiveness and forgetting is the same thing. No, it's not. It's not the same thing. That's not reasonable. That's not appropriate. If someone murdered your child, you think you can forget it? But you can still forgive them. Because I've seen that in working with Thousand Mothers to Prevent Violence. I've seen those mothers go to the courtroom and say that they've forgiven that person that killed their son. And you can be set free from the bondage of hate and bitterness and resentment, but I highly doubt you'd forget how your loved one died in the hands of a murderer. I don't think you'd forget that. Forgetting can be a process of forgiveness, but there is no way you will forget... If you don't forgive. Right? So there are some other things that you do and you'll be able to forget that. You're like, oh yeah, I forgot that even happened to me. But you will not get to that forgetfulness if you don't first forgive. I mean, you can forgive and possibly not forget. But you can't possibly forget if you don't forgive. It's something in there. Even if you forget the occurrence, because I've done this in counseling too. Where someone forgets the actual occurrence, but that unforgiveness is in their heart and you pull it out of them, and then they can trace it back to, oh yeah, that happened to me. I remember when my dad did this to me. I remember when my mom did this to me. I remember when my so-and-so, my sibling, did this to me. And all that stuff is brought back and it roots back to unforgiveness. Now God, on the other hand, God can forgive and forget. And He does that consistently. And we can probably do that for some things, but there are some things that we can't forget. What about divorce due to infidelity? Are you going to be able to forget that? You get remarried, oh yeah, I was was married before, I forgot about that. I don't don't even remember why we got a divorce, that's really weird. (laughs) No, right? I mean, you're going to remember. You're going to remember that. So you don't always forget, but God does. God does forget your sin. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Thank God. See, God has the ability to remember our sins no more, but we in our current form, humanly form, we do not. As those things haunt us and come back to our memories, may we remember to hold the posture of forgiveness, to have a heart of forgiveness, that even if those memories hit us seven times a day, we forgive because there is 
no freedom otherwise. You're in bondage. That even when people bring things up to us that we've already forgiven and they stir something in us, may we hold to the promise of forgiveness. That even if we bring things up that we can't seem to forgive ourselves for, because I think a lot of us beat ourselves up and we can't forgive ourselves for things that we've done, remember that Jesus paid it all. And God forgives you of those sins when you repent. And you are not greater than God. I find it fascinating when people say, God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. What? You are bigger than God? Bless me. Forgive me of my sins, you bigger one than God. Like, are you kidding me? What do you mean? I can't forgive myself. I know God, but I can't forgive myself. Sorry, God. God number two, right? Almighty God has forgiven you. Who are you to say, like, I can't forgive myself? Give me a break. You're so prideful. You're so prideful saying that you are bigger than God. That is so prideful. Something helpful to keep in mind when asking for forgiveness is to be appropriate. Okay? So... This is for some people out there where, you know, I've just received a lot of confessions from people towards me, and I've just been like, why are you telling me this? Don't tell me this. If the sin is in your head, you don't have to confess it to the person you've sinned against if it's just in your head. Does that make sense? You don't have to confess every sinful thought that you've ever had towards another person. Now, yes, you confess your sins but not necessarily to that person. You confess your sins to to a safe group of people, your counselor, your pastor, a few trusted people in your small group, but you don't have to voice every thought in your head to the person the sins in your head are toward. If the sin is in your heart, it is known to God, and according to James chapter 5, verse 16, we are to confess our sins one to another and pray for one another that we may be healed. But it doesn't mean that we confess our sin to just anyone. It is not wise for a man to confess his lust towards a woman that he has had lustful thoughts about. Dumb. That is dumb. You're going to freak her out. Right? You're going to freak her out. You confess that to the men in your small group who will pray for you and that you will get healing. You ask for resources. You ask for people to give you resources. You talk to your pastor who can support you and have you repent of that sin. It is not wise or appropriate for a teacher to tell her students, I hate you guys. You guys get on my nerves. If I had children like you, I'd leave the country. Even though I did that to our Taekwondo class the other day. No, I told them. I, I was teaching them. I was so frustrated with them because they weren't listening and they were just playing around doing all this stuff. So I stopped class. I said, the next person that acts up is leaving this program and never coming back. And I said, it's 6 o'clock. My family's having dinner. I'm not with them. I'm volunteering my time to be here with you. So if you act up, you're out of here so I can go home and have dinner with my family. Unfortunately, I'll behave from there. So well, here we go. We taught them anyway. But you go to a support group. I need a support group. You, you go to a counselor, and I have one, and you confess your sins, and, and you get prayer, 
but your classroom is not the appropriate place for you to say, I hate you! Right? So you confess your sins to God and to a community of people who are safe and trusted and who will pray for you. But if the sin is just in your head and in your mind and it hasn't manifested in a way that it affects the person you've sinned against, you don't confess it to that person. The person who is unaware of the sins of lust or covetousness or murder or anger or things like that is not being helped by your confession. It is more likely that it will be harmful. And I share this because I've had different people confess different things that they've had against me. And I realize that I'm their pastor. But that they're not always appropriate. So they've come and they've confessed their sins to me that are in their head. They haven't come out towards me. It's in their head. Keep it there. And so I'm totally unaware of their sinful hearts and their thoughts towards me. But they didn't sin against me. They sinned against God for that. They didn't sin against me. They didn't come, if they're angry at me, they didn't punch me. If they had some other types of thoughts, or they didn't act out on those things. So that sin that they have is against God. It's not towards me. There's nothing to confess or ask for forgiveness from me. So confess that to God, because that really doesn't affect me until you kind of vomit your stuff to me. Then it affects me, and I'm like, oh, you're freaky. You should have just stuffed it. Here, get it back in your mouth. Here, stuff it in there. The confession is to God for the sin that is against Him and to confess it to other people who could support you in repentance. And I'm honored that people trust me enough to confess their sins to me so that I can pray for them and and ask God for healing and, and I think about how to help them. But if the sin is in your heart and your mind towards me or towards a specific person, it's probably best not to work it out with that specific person or me. You got to get a support group. You got to get a counselor. You got to get something else to deal with what's going on in here before it comes out here and then you affect more people. So, check number one Am I influencing others to sin? Number two, am I forgiving? And number three, am I faithful? Verse five The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Amen to that. Lord, increase my faith. I have so many problems. I have forgiveness issues. I, I have all these different issues that I have that I'm dealing with. Increase my faith. Verse 6, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Hear what Jesus said here? See, it's not the amount of faith. Because the grain of a mustard seed is like a little speck, like a speck of pepper, right? So it's not the amount of faith. It is the type of faith that makes the difference. It's the type. It's not the quantity. Because if they had the right kind of faith, like the grain of a mustard seed, that seed has life in it. It's going to grow. It's a living faith. And that's what changes things. See, if we had the wrong type of faith, it just doesn't matter how much we have. It's the wrong type. If it's dead seed, it's not going to sprout. So it doesn't matter how much you have. It's still an ineffective faith. But if we have the right type of faith, even a very little of it, great faith in God is not what is required, right? Great faith in God is not required. Faith in a great God is what is required. It's not pending on us. 
The faith is not pinning on us. We recognize that God is the great God. The mustard seed was the smallest of seeds in in that region when Jesus was teaching. And the mulberry tree was thought to have these extraordinarily strong roots, right? Some of which could stay rooted for 600 years. So it was incredibly challenging to uproot this tree and throw it into the sea. Do you see the picture that Jesus is drawing here? So he's using these commonly known things to illustrate the right type of faith. And and no matter how small it is, it is powerful. It is extremely powerful. And it's just that this is a picture of faith. This is not literal. I believe that there are many parts of the Bible that are. This isn't one of them. And so there are folks that believe that this is literal. But... I have yet to read or witness or even hear about someone uprooting a tree and throwing it into the sea as a miracle. It's never recorded. But I believe in miracles and I believe in literal things. Like healings? I believe in that. I believe in those miraculous things. I believe in a lot. The parting of the Red Sea, I believe, is literal. Peter walking on water is literal. Lazarus raising from the dead is literal. I I believe in these literal things. But this is just one of them that I don't. Because there's no evidence of that happening. This is a story that Jesus is telling. No one has done this. None of the apostles, Paul, no one's done this. Verses 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So here's the last check in our text about paying attention to ourselves. Am I performing my duty? So am I influencing others to sin? Am I forgiving? Am I faithful? And am I performing my duty? Now, this last parable that we're going to look at this morning, verses 7 through 10, needs to be understood in the context of that time period. Because if you just kind of read it with your modern day eyes, this kind of sounds offensive, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't this seem kind of like degrading, belittling? Like, what? The Bible is this? See, we're looking at a time in history where reciprocity was a huge deal, it's a big deal. That's why in Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 35, when Jesus said this, he shocked the people he was talking to. Listen to this. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. And those people were thinking, what did He just say? This makes no sense, because our people, our society, our culture, we value reciprocity. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. You give me something, I give you something. You lend me something, I lend you something. We believe in leverage. We believe in obliging people to repay us. We respect knowing one's place. That we all fall in this kind of order. And Jesus was challenging their thinking. 
So when Jesus asked the question in verse 9, does he, does the master, thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Jesus is playing off this idea that the society had and strongly believed that there were these obligations and these reciprocating actions. So with this idea in mind, does the master owe the servant some sort of reciprocating action? See, this isn't to be interpreted as the master being rude and not saying thank you, like, do what I paid you to do. This is not about being rude. This is talking about the master owing something to the servant for simply doing his duty, fulfilling his responsibilities. So does the servant have such leverage to require reciprocity, what they valued so much in their society? No. The servant is simply going about his duty. He's just doing his work. There is no call of reciprocity. So why does Jesus even bring this up? He's addressing his disciples, right? He said, pay attention to yourselves. And then he goes on instructing them how to pay attention to themselves. And he ends with this. Because they're probably feeling that they're owed something because they're following Jesus. Hey, we're with Jesus. He raises people from the dead. He provides food for people. He calms the seas. He heals demoniacs. I mean, we're with him. We're with the big guy. I wonder what we're going to get. I wonder what we're going to be blessed with. Are we going to get a lot of money? Or are we going to get powers? Or then what are we going to get? That by being a servant of Jesus, it entitled them to something greater. But Jesus reminded them that their duty to God doesn't obligate or leverage God into giving you something greater. God doesn't owe us anything. Right? This isn't a game of reciprocity where you do something for God and, and so now he'll do something for you. That's not how this works. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Remember this? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Luke chapter 20 also. Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. And he's warning his disciples, don't do that. Don't make a big spectacle about being my follower. You know, you are to be a humble servant. There's nothing prideful there. There's nothing prideful in how you exhibit your relationship with God. All right, so Jesus, Jesus is our master. He doesn't owe us anything. And we as his servants, as, as, as we serve in a humble manner, not in a way that brings attention to us like the scribes and Pharisees did, right? Man, look how religious I am. How many times I pray and that I know the scriptures because I study so much and I go to temple all the time and how much I give, you know, clink, 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 clink. And, 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 and thank God I'm not like that sinner, that tax collector there and all this kind of stuff. And we get so prideful about how we exhibit our relationship with God, you know, and getting the best seats and all this kind of stuff. That's not a servant of Jesus Christ. We are to be humble. And anything we serve Jesus with was a gift from Him in the first place. So what is there to be prideful about? Every ability, every talent, every know-how was given to us as a gift from God. And if you don't recognize that, maybe you need to check your pride meter. Did you give yourself the breaths that you breathe that keep you alive? Did you give yourself the ability to communicate? 
Did you give yourself the brain to think? We are nothing without God. We can't serve God unless He first equipped us for service. So there's no reciprocity. He doesn't owe us anything. There's no obligation for God to thank us for performing our duty. Whatever thanks or reward that we have received from God is just a generous gift of grace. That He is that gracious, that He is that generous to give that to us. So Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. Are you influencing others to sin? Are you forgiving? Are you a forgiving person? Are you a faithful person? Are you dutifully serving your Master, Jesus, in a humble manner? Let's pray. God, uh, Your Word is so convicting. And Lord, I ask for forgiveness of, of my sins that I, I am just not that good at forgiving people when they've wronged me. And Lord, uh, just so many faults of my own. And as we are here dutifully serving Your people, we ask, God, that You would soften our hearts that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit about when we are influencing others to sin, that we would indeed pay attention to ourselves, that we would take a hard look in the mirror before rebuking a brother. Lord, have us look deep into our hearts to, to see if we are indeed forgiving people, if we are faithful people. And Lord, forgive us if we ever feel that you owe us something for just doing our duty. Thank you for the gifts that you've given us to even be on this earth. And we pray, Lord, that we would just go about serving you in humility in Jesus' name. Amen.